0: made mention uh, today is my last sermon as the pastor of the rock, and on occasions like this, it's uh, impossible not to be reflective. came in earlier today than I think I ever have, just to spend a little extra time. And I had an opportunity to speak to some of you. I went up and spoke with Edie Brower, and uh, Doug Check was the first person I ever met, but Bill and Edie were the first two that I met after I had preached. Bill beeline toward me and uh, said some very direct exhortations, (laughs) as is his custom. Uh, So we were reflecting on that. And it's wonderful to see Lou and Marguerite Warad here. Uh, Many of you may not know Lou and Marguerite, but this church would not be here without them. Uh, They came with me. And Angie and Wayne and Alva back uh, seven and a bit years ago. And the AGC uh, commissioned Lou to make sure I didn't make any major mistakes. Uh, So Lou, I I thank you for that. And Marguerite as well. Uh, You were here for several years at the very beginning and made sure that we got off on the right foot. So we all owe uh, this couple a debt of gratitude. I'm very thankful that you're here today. Let's just thank them for what they have done. It was also nice to see Corbin on the drums. Corbin was our very first drummer 7 years ago at the age of 8 and I still remember that. It was kind of shocking he could barely see over the drums and <laughs> and he, and he was excellent. Uh so Corbin that was it was nice to have you on the drums again. You've been up front for so long. Uh to see you on the drums it was memorable. It has been a joy and an honor for, for me and for Angie to serve here in ministry, for me to serve as your pastor for just a little more than seven years. And this transition has been very difficult for us. It's never easy to leave a church, I hope. It shouldn't be. Uh, but it's been particularly hard for us. This has been a foundational charge for us. Uh, this is where we got our start in, in at least senior pastoring. Uh, this is where we started our family uh, we 've gone through many things as a family that you were there for, and you comforted us when we needed to be comforted. You encouraged us when we needed encouragement and uh, so this church is is our home church, and no matter where the Lord sends us, hopefully you know the Lord will keep us put at the next church for a long, long time. But no matter where God sends us, this will always have a special place in our heart. ...as a foundational experience. So I want to thank each and every one of you. And it hasn't always been easy. It hasn't always been easy for you. It hasn't always been easy for us. Uh, As every family does, we go through things. Uh, But for all of you who are here today, and those some of you who may not be here... ...who may be listening to this at some later date... ...I just want to thank you for the love, the genuine love... commitment to God through Christ and our commitment to His Word. Transition always is difficult. doesn't matter what part of your life you're transitioning. Transition is hard. Uh, Transition can really beat up churches. Uh, Some people take the opportunity uh, when a church is in transition to see what else is out there. Well, it's just sort of There's no pastor here for now. This is a good time to go and sort of check out the other churches. Uh others stay but disengage slightly. Next week or a month from now or two months from now, you know, I just it's been a hard week. My bed is comfortable. I've got other things I might want to do. Uh we don't have a lead pastor. So I'm just going to stay home. Or I'm not going to come to that Bible study or that prayer meeting. I'm not going to have someone into my home. So I'm going to stay, see what happens, but I'm just going to step back. There's an opportunity for me to take a breather. Others stay and see that this is a great time to air their grievances. There's been this thing that I haven't quite liked for some time. And now is the time that I think, well, let's... Bring that to light and uh, ask the elders, in addition to everything that they're going through to deal with me and my problems, uh, others are glad. Finally, I I never thought this day would come. Adam is finally gone. And they they pin their hopes on the next pastor. Well, you know, we endured seven hard years. I mean, Jacob endured seven years for a wife. We endured seven years. Maybe we'll get a better pastor next time. Um, Others in this same vein have left because of who filled the pulpit. They may see this as an opportunity to come back. And I would just encourage you to be redemptive, but be cautious. Make sure that whatever it was that caused someone to leave this church, that that's fully dealt with before you open your arms because, well, maybe the numbers are dwindling. Maybe the finances are down. Uh, This is a way that we can fill up the church again. Uh, But always keep in mind that over the last seven years, God has been doing some pruning. You never want to see someone go. But the, the hard reality of, of life in church is that some people need to go. So welcome people back with a, a redemptive spirit. But be wise. Be cautious. Be slow. And just say, why now? Why come back? What, why did you leave? Why do you think that things have changed that you can come back? None of these options are the right option right now. Not, none of these things that often happen, and, and I'm not thinking of any anyone in particular. I'm just thinking about churches in general. When churches are in transition, these are the kinds of things that happen. But now is not the time for any of that. Now is the time to engage more fully, to give yourself more to this church than you ever have before. Now is the time to honor your elders by looking to them for leadership. Not trying to lead the elders, but looking to the elders for their leadership through this time of transition. Now is a time to be a blessing and not a burden A blessing and not a burden. To to come and to contribute your gifts and not to drain the church of the gifts of others. And the heavy task of leadership that that falls to a few. And as Wayne has already pointed out, now is a time to remember that the rock is not my church. The rock does not belong to me. I could say that the rock is your church, but that's not even true either. We are the church. And the church belongs to Christ. And He's watching and He's leading through His Scriptures and His Holy Spirit. Now, I may be leaving, but the pastor of this church is staying. The chief shepherd is still the head of the church. So come, contribute your gifts, stay, engage more fully, be a blessing and not a burden, all to the glory of the pastor of this church, Jesus Christ. Which brings me to the preaching text for this morning. My final exhortation to you as your pastor. Would you open your Bibles to Second Timothy, Chapter Two, Verse Eight? Would you please stand now? And always, this is a good exhortation for the church. But especially now, I give this to you at a time of great transition for the church. Forget about everything else. Now the Word of God. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this church. I thank You that Jesus is the head of this church in every church. And that we are all part of one great church, one bride of Christ. I pray for this congregation as you have moved me out of oversight of this church. You've released me and called me to another church. I pray for this church that you would work within their hearts and their minds and their spirits. Help them to come together. And at a time like this, add to their number those who might be saved and those who are looking for a Bible-based church that loves the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for the next pastor that you would bring him quickly. Uh, that you would select him and you would give the elders sight and discernment and wisdom and courage to see who that is and to uh, to put him in place and for the church to affirm in unity of spirit, the man of Your choosing. Above all else, Lord, I pray that You would help us all to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, and offspring of David, according to my gospel. Please open our minds to this exhortation. Print it on our hearts. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. This is a short verse, but it, it encompasses so much. The verse itself is an exhortation. It's an exhortation to remember. To remember Jesus Christ. And, and the context of this is that Paul is writing to Timothy, who is the pastor at Ephesus, and the Ephesian church was giving him a particularly hard time. So much so that... that Timothy was in despair. He didn't know if he could continue to to fulfill his ministry, to do the things that God had called him to do, equipped him to do, gifted him to do. The things that Paul and other elders had laid their hands on him in the presence of others and said, we commission you to do these things. And Timothy was buckling under the pressure. Therefore, the most transferable application of this verse is to pastors and to elders during difficult times of leadership in the church. And so at the very outset, this this message on the one hand is for the elders of this church. It's for you to remember Jesus Christ when the going gets tough in the days and weeks and months ahead Remember Jesus Christ. Remember that from before the foundation of the world, Jesus had hand-selected you for leadership over this church at this time. Remember that. And lead in accordance with the Scriptures with confidence in the gospel and the God whom you serve. More broadly, however, this exhortation is applicable for any Christian during any difficult time in life. So so all of us, by definition of transition, are entering into a difficult time. It's a time when life in the church can be chaotic. It's a time when the worst sides of ourselves seem to come forward. Remember Jesus Christ. It's amazing how many conflicts will be eliminated if everyone here makes a concerted effort to remember Jesus Christ. And more broadly yet, this is a good exhortation for any moment, good or bad, for any Christian at all times. Whatever it is that your, your life is about right now, remember Jesus Christ. It's always a good exhortation. Always and forever. Forever. Now what exactly is the exhortation what exactly are we called to remember well like i said there's not many words here but as i was preparing this this message i just it just kept opening up and opening up and opening up uh, uh, on me and i was mindful of the fact that i've been asked to just sort of keep it a little bit shorter today because we have other things to tend to uh, so I promise you I, I will, I will make every effort to preach this in 49 minutes instead of my regular 50. Uh, but we want to remember five things. Number one, we, we remember the significance of the name of Jesus. We remember the significance of the title that He holds. That is, He is the Christ. We remember the significance of the activity, the redemptive activity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that climatically in this activity, He was raised from the dead. We remember the pedigree of Jesus Christ. He is the offspring of David. And finally, we remember that in all of these things, there's authority. That in Paul's Gospel the gospel that he received from Jesus Christ, there is authority. There is no greater authority under heaven. There's no sovereign power greater than the authority in this verse vested in Jesus Christ given to the church. So those are the things that we remember. Let's go through these one at a time and just look at, at the significance for us of these five elements of this exhortation. Number one, we remember Jesus. We remember Jesus. And what we're remembering specifically is the name. What is the name of Jesus? Sometimes I think we forget who named Jesus. Who who was it that named Jesus? It was God. God hand-selected the name Jesus for His Son. And he commanded Joseph to name Jesus, Jesus. Why Jesus? Of all the names that God could have chose, why did he choose the name of Jesus? It's because the name Jesus is just the English alliteration of the Hebrew name Joshua. Jesus and Joshua are the exact same name. So God said, I want my son, when he's born in the flesh, to be named Joshua. In Hebrew, Jesus is Yeshua. So that's where we get the English Joshua. Yeshua. Yeshua. Jeshua. Joshua. In Greek, the name of Joshua is Jesus. That's where we get Jesus. 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 Jesus is Joshua. So what's the meaning of the name? What's so good about the name Joshua? Why not name him Adam? He is, after all, the second Adam. Didn't he come to redeem the fall of Adam? No, he's not named Adam. He's named Joshua. This is because Joshua is the man that God selected And I would even argue Joshua is the man that God named and then selected to succeed Moses in the leadership of Israel. And what was what was given, what task was given to Joshua when he succeeded Moses? Moses had done so much. God had given the the law through Moses. uh, And before that, God had sent Moses back to Egypt. Uh, Moses had addressed Pharaoh. God had sent ten plagues through Moses. Moses had instituted the Passover. Moses had done so much. God says no Moses you're not the man to lead my people into the promised land and what we know about Moses is that he is so much associated with the law of God John even says in his gospel the law came through Moses but grace and truth came through Joshua Jesus God needed a new man for a new leg of salvation history. The law is important, but the law will never get you into the promised land. God's going to do that by His grace. It's exactly what we read about in Deuteronomy 9, right? God said through Moses, the lawgiver, during one of Moses' final sermons, when you go into the land to possess it, I will go ahead of you. And when you possess the land, do not for a moment think that you are better than any of the nations that you have dispossessed because you are a stiff-necked people, a rebellious people. And my giving the land to you is entirely hinged to my grace over you. Joshua will lead you I will go before Him and I will give you the land. And through you, I will punish the wickedness of the nations in the land. And I will give you a gift that you do not deserve. This is exactly what Jesus does for all of us, you see. Every single one of us is en route. We were slaves. Slaves, not in Egypt, but enslaved to our sin. And God has redeemed us through the Passover of the sacrifice of His only Son, the Lamb of God who died on the cross. And through Passover, He delivers us from slavery, brings us into the wilderness where we are right now. So if your life seems hard, it's because you are in the wilderness. And the wilderness is a time of testing and trial. Will you be humble? Will you trust God? To take you into the promised land. And Joshua, Jesus, will come back for us. And He will take us into the eternal promised land. Remember this. When your life is hard, you're in the wilderness. But you've been delivered from slavery. And you're en route to the promised land. So whatever you're dealing with now... Don't let it overcome you. Don't let it sink you because Joshua will return for you. Remember this. Joshua will come and He will take you into the promised land. And once you enter into that eternal promised land with Him, there is no turning back. Believe it. It's a promise of God. The name Joshua consequently means the Lord saves. The Lord saves. He has proven it time and time again. And it's recorded for us in the Bible. He saved Israel and He saved us. Both through Passover. Always under the leadership of Joshua. Remember this. Secondly, The title, Christ. No, this is not the last name of Jesus. In fact, historically, Jesus often is referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. He he is Jesus who was from Nazareth. But the church very early said, no, this is the Christ. Christ is not a name, it's a title. Remember that Jesus is the Christ. What does that mean? What what does it mean to be the Christ? Christ. Well, Christ, again, is just the the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. What does Messiah mean? Messiah simply means anointed one. So if you're anointed, and in the Old Testament customs, you'd be anointed with oil to serve as a high priest. You, you would be anointed to serve as a high priest. But most specifically, when, when you talk about a Messiah, an anointed one, what you're talking about is a king. A king. Anointed. To serve as God's king. God's representative over the people Israel. So Saul was the first Messiah in this sense of Israel. But the Lord removed His Spirit from Saul and put His Spirit on David. And from from that point forward, this, this term Messiah is most closely linked to Davidic kingship. Over the house of Israel, but also, as we unfold the Old Testament, we see that the king over Israel is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Psalm two, beautiful Psalm makes that exact point. Uh, the King of Israel is not just the King of Israel, he is the King of all kings, and he is the Lord over all other lords. So that in Psalm 110, uh, David and says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And there's this coming together of, of, of the earthly king and the divine king in Psalm 110, which makes it the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. Later traditions in the Old Testament took this, this foundational tradition of messiahship and began to enfold other traditions into it so for example you have the tradition of the son of man which which is most prominent in daniel 7 And in Daniel 7, you see one like a son of man who comes to the throne of the ancient of days. And the reason that this gets folded in is that the ancient of days, who is God the Father, gives the one like a son of man authority over every kingdom in the world. And his is a kingdom that will last forever. This idea of Messiahship then begins to to take on this expanded meaning even in the Old Testament. And at the time of Christ, this was the dominant view of what the Messiah was. That, that everyone expected one like a son of man to come and to overthrow Rome and to establish the kingdom. Which Jesus did. But not the way they expected They thought that he would come with political force and he would come like a roaring lion to overthrow the imperial powers and and take back the world by force. But that's not what happened. In fact, there's a a third tradition of Messiah that was often forgotten during the first century before Jesus came, not forgotten by the church after he came, uh, but often forgotten by Israel, but remembered by the church. Jesus Himself said, is it not true that the Messiah must come and die according to the Scriptures? It's a tradition of the suffering servant in in Isaiah. And, and the suffering servant is the, the representative of humanity who would come and though He did nothing wrong, He would take the sins of everyone into Himself and He would be punished on our behalf. And... The Christ came and did this. If the Christ had come as a roaring lion as expected, who could have stood? There would have been no atonement for sin. And we all would have perished. And, and, and the Messiah would have had a kingdom, but He would have been alone in that kingdom. And so God sent forth the Messiah as a lamb first. So that He would lay down His life for the sheep for you and for me. So when we say that Jesus is the Christ, all of this has to come into our minds that, that Jesus came first as a lamb to date, lay down His life for those who would believe in Him, but He will return as a roaring lion. And there where you, you, you begin to see the tradition of the Son of Man come to, into effect, and Jesus Himself said to the high priest uh, right before He was crucified, they said, are you the Christ? What did he say? I am. And you will see the son of man coming on the clouds. And he will. And when the son of man comes on the clouds, he does not come back as a lamb, but as a roaring lion, as the son of man who will take authority over the earth. He will take back the world and he will judge the living and the dead. And He will set up His kingdom and He will reign as King. Because He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Nothing and no one can change this reality. So remember it. It doesn't matter what you're going through in your life. The Son of Man will return. The Christ will come back. Will we be ready? And will He find a church ready? for his return here at the rock this puts all things i hope into their proper perspective so don't fight over trivial things don't bicker don't go and see what what else is on offer in woodstock stay here work for the christ diligently So that when He comes, you will be approved by Him. Pull together. Be united in spirit and in the bond of peace. Bear with one another. It's not always going to be easy. We are, we are people with personalities. Uh, we conflict with one another. So we can either focus on that or we can remember Jesus Christ. thirdly, we can remember what he has done. The action of Jesus Christ. He's been raised from the dead. Now, it has always been difficult to believe that someone could die and then be raised from the dead. This is not something that we in our enlightened state in the 21st century have finally discovered that this is something that's difficult to believe in. In fact, The 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 disciples themselves who journeyed with Jesus for three years after he's right in front of their faces and he's speaking to them, he says, touch me, touch me. I have been raised from the dead. I'm not a ghost. A ghost does not have flesh and blood as you see that I have. And, And they still did not believe it for fear and amazement. So he says, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a fish and he ate it and they said, well, I guess we believe it. Because ghosts don't eat fish. We're talking about a man who was crucified on the cross, was buried in the ground, and came back to life. This is the central claim of the Christian. Remember the central claim that unites us as one people. We we may not all be uh, natural friends... But we are united together by this one historical fact. The Son of God, the Word, who is very God Himself, took on flesh, came, lived a perfect, sinless life, took on the sin of the world, was nailed to a cross much like this one, received the full wrath of God as people circled around Him mocking Him and jeering Him saying, you can't be who you say you are. And He died. And He was buried. And He took our sins and He buried them with His dead body. And then three days later, the same body that walked on water multiplied bread and fish was crucified and buried, came back to life. And that very same body and all of the humanity of Christ with it was resurrected. Jesus is alive and he's a man as much as he is fully God always and forever from the point of his conception in the womb of Mary, his mother, he has always and will always be a man and his humanity endures. If he was to throw off his humanity uh, at the resurrection or if he was to throw off his humanity en route to heaven, if it somehow evaporated from him during the ascension, our salvation would have been thrown off with it. Jesus is a man and He is alive. He was raised from the dead. Now what's the significance for us? For us. If Jesus was raised from the dead, it validates who He said He was. It validates His ministry. It validates everything that He ever said and everything that He ever did. Which means that He most definitely is the Son of God. It means most definitely He is the Christ. The Messiah. Most definitely, He is the Savior of the world. It it means that His confidence in the Scriptures, and He is quoted as saying, the Scriptures cannot be broken. And in another place, in the Sermon on the Mount, He says, don't think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't. Not one jot or tittle will be erased. God's Word will last forever, even when heaven and earth pass away. So his confidence in the Scriptures is validated. The Scriptures are proved to be true, which means that the Bible is the Word of God. You see the significance? When when we say that Jesus was raised from the dead, all of this flows back. And in fact, you know, in, in university when I was doing my undergraduate, though I was saved as a child and God has been so gracious to me every day of my life, By some act of insanity, I tried to unbelieve. I thought, well, if I could just be released from this conviction I have in my heart of who Jesus is and the demands that that places on me, one of them being called into ministry, by the way, something that I I ran from in my early days. If I could just unbelieve, then I would be free to pursue whatever life's pleasures I desired. Do you know what? I I, I could get rid of a lot of it. I could unbelieve Jonah if I wanted to. I could unbelieve the ark if I wanted to. I could unbelieve creation if I wanted to. But I could not unbelieve the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I just couldn't. There's a gift that God gave me. So while it has always been difficult to believe that a man could die and come back to life, that very thing that is hard to believe, I could not stop believing That conviction and confidence in the resurrection of Jesus has brought me to where I am right now. Who knows what I would have been doing if I could have shaken the belief that Jesus died and came back to life. I want that for you. All of you. That... No matter what you might ever do in your own act of insanity, you cannot unbelieve the central truth of the gospel that Jesus died and came back to life. And in so doing, He paid for our sins and purchased for us eternal life. Now, the significance for us doesn't stop there. Uh, according to 1 Corinthians 15, we get into this. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, then, then He is just the first fruits. He's just the first of, of many who will be raised from the dead. In fact, if you go to Daniel 12, everyone will be raised fr- from the dead, but, but this resurrection from the dead unto eternal life is not for everyone. So everyone will be raised from the grave, some unto eternal judgment condemnation, but some unto eternal life. And who are we who inherit eternal life? It's we who believe that Jesus is the Christ who died and rose again. So if Jesus died and rose again, then we too, though we die, will rise again. You cannot be... Uh, saved. You cannot be a Christian if you don't believe in your own resurrection from the dead. If you cannot believe that your resurrection from the dead is tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ that you're not saved. I could say with full confidence because I cannot shake the resurrection of Jesus as a core conviction of who I am that when I die and you put my body in the ground, unless the Lord returns, that body deposited to the ground, will rise. When? When Jesus commands me to rise. Remember that. What can we do if we have no fear of death? If we know that the worst that can happen to us is our bodies are put in the ground waiting for a future resurrection. What what a force unleashed could we be in this city and around the world By contrast, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then our faith is futile and we're still lost in our sins. Everything that we do here as the church hinges on our confidence in resurrection. What we believe is not a philosophy. It's not an idea. It's not some great truth that somebody conjured up. It's a historical fact that has eternal consequences. Remember that and give your life to it. Fourth, we remember the pedigree of Jesus. And we went over this a couple of weeks ago, so I can go over this fairly quickly. Jesus was the offspring of David. And this I think for a lot of Christians, though I hope not this church, because we spent so much time talking about David. We spent so much time in the Old Testament. But for a lot of Christians, this is sort of a trivial fact. Yeah, David or whomever doesn't really matter. But but what what I hope that we have been able to see over these last seven years is that the Old Testament absolutely matters to a right understanding of the gospel. And, And it's this important. If Jesus is not an offspring of David, then he is not the Christ. And so if he's not a descendant of David, we're still lost in our sins. Because He cannot be the Messiah if He is not a descendant of David. See, God in Genesis 12 made a spectacular set of unconditional promises to a man by the name of Abraham. And He says, listen, Abraham, I want you to leave your country, your kindred, and your father's home. I want you to go to a land that I will show you. I am going to bless you. I am going to make your name great. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see, this is the gospel, Genesis 12. Uh, Genesis 1 through 11 is basically everything that humanity tried to do to pick us our, ourselves out of our own rebellion and sin. And, and basically what those 11 chapters prove is we can't do it. That, that if God leaves it up to us, we are lost. The only hope for us is certain judgment, condemnation. So, God had a choice, I suppose. The Bible could have ended in Genesis 11. Bring in the final judgment in Revelation 20. We're done. No salvation. Or, God could choose for Himself a man... And say, you know what, I'm going to make you some unconditional promises so it doesn't matter how bad you mess this up. It doesn't even matter how bad your son messes this up or your son's son or your son's son's son or all of the sons because through you, I'm going to do something spectacular and I'm going to save for myself a people. And all the families of the earth are going to partake in the blessing that I am pouring out on you. And this promise given to Abraham was passed not to Ishmael, but to Isaac. And from Isaac, not to Esau, but to Jacob. And from Jacob, not to Joseph, but to Judah and from Judah to Perez, and from Perez to so on. Until we get to David, God rejects Saul. Why? Well, we could talk about a lot of things, but he's not from Judah. Genesis 49, the Messiah is coming from Judah, not Benjamin. Saul is from Benjamin. David's from Judah. God picks up His promise. He lays the unconditional promises originally given to Abraham He sets them on David. And David's son was a terrible disaster. Solomon. And Solomon's son was worse. Rehoboam. And so on and so on. Until we get to Joseph. Son of David. Who God calls to be the father of the Messiah. So yes, Jesus is a descendant of David according to the promise given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Judah and to every generation. And if you read the Old Testament, you want to understand it? Don't look for moral instruction. Look for the unconditional promises of God being passed down one generation at a time through sinful men and women. Until we get to the sinless one, The root and the branch of David. What's the significance for us? This is but one way that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament Scriptures. You want to understand the Gospel? Start with this, that Jesus is a descendant of David. And then begin to look for all the ways that Jesus fulfills the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Because all of God's promises find their yes in Him. And I hope that I will impart that as I go from here, that your hunger for the Old Testament, and not moral instruction, but for the Gospel from the Old Testament, will never be satisfied. Require your next pastor to preach the whole counsel of God and the gospel from every page of Scripture. Remember that Jesus is a descendant of David, the fulfillment of every promise of God. Finally, we come to the authority of this gospel uh, Paul says, this is according to my gospel. Now, he's not saying that, that, that he is the one who created this gospel. He's not saying that he is somehow in charge of this gospel. What he's saying is, listen, Timothy, all this strife in your church, it's because there are competing gospels, but no one that has a competing gospel has received the gospel the way I have received the gospel. And in many places Paul shares this with us, so let's just remind ourselves of this. This is another thing that gives me so much confidence in what we believe. Uh, Paul was an enemy of Christ and an enemy of the church. So much so that he loved to see Christians killed. Why would a, why would God choose a man like that to become the most uh, abundant author of the New Testament Scriptures? No one has written more in the New Testament than Paul. Luke might be a close second. Maybe word for word I got that backwards. I don't know. But Paul definitely got more books. Why would God do such a thing? There is no way, humanly speaking, that Paul is going to become a champion for the gospel and lose his head over it. There's no way, absolutely no way, that that man is going to have a turnaround like that. The only way to explain what happened in Paul's life is to say that the gospel is true and that Paul's gospel is true. That the things that Paul claimed about himself are true. that, That he was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians, presumably so that they could be tried and stoned. And he never got there to do what he had set out to do. That he in fact became one of them on the way. And that is indisputable historically. What is disputable historically is well, what happened. When Paul was going from Jerusalem to Damascus, what happened? That might be disputable, but, but we have no reason to doubt Paul's own um, testimony about what happened. He says, I was on my way and I saw a blinding light. I fell off my horse and I saw the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And he spoke to me. And I went blind. And I changed. Not because I changed, but because God changed me. And then he becomes the champion of the gospel. And and we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that he was even caught up to heaven. And, and he doesn't give us a lot of detail about that, but, but I, I understand from that chapter is that everything that we get in the Bible, it was so important that Paul get it right, that Jesus has just come up here for a little face-to-face with me, and, and he gets all of his study at the feet of Jesus himself. He boasts about being a student at the feet of Gamaliel. That is nothing compared to being a student at the feet of Jesus Christ in heaven. That's what he means by my gospel. Uh, Those other guys, I don't know where they got their gospel. I got my gospel from the Lord Jesus Christ directly. So it has authority. I've been sent, says Paul. So don't worry about everybody else. Focus on the truth. And let everyone else do what everyone else does. You go up a little bit higher in the chapter. He he says to Timothy, be like like a soldier who, who looks for the command from his enlisting officer and doesn't get entangled in civilian pursuits. So I commend that to you as a church as well, especially to the elders. Uh, as conflict arises potentially in the transition, let it fade away. Focus on Jesus Christ. Be like an athlete that competes according to the rules. That means when you're making decisions, open this book. Implement the pastoral epistles and let every other good idea fade away. I'm being charitable by saying good idea. Be like a farmer who works hard. Puts puts seed in the ground. He can't make the seed grow. Your task as a church, and again, especially to the elders, is not to make this church grow, but to put the seeds in the ground, the right seeds. Then let God produce the growth. And you elders share in that harvest. Significance for us is exactly what I just said. Put your focus in the right place. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, a descendant of David, according to Paul's gospel. To wrap this up, I don't know if I kept it under 49 minutes. This is my last chance. (laughs) Jesus of Nazareth is the new Joshua. And He came to save sinners from slavery to sin so that He might lead them into the eternal promised land. Remember Him. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Messiah, who reigns as King even now. He will judge the living and the dead. He came first as a suffering servant to propitiate the wrath of God for all of us who believe. Remember that. Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead as the first fruits of we who believe. We will be raised from the dead to be like him as he is. Therefore, his life and ministry and words are validated. Therefore, his confidence in the scripture is true. Remember him. Jesus of Nazareth is a descendant of David who fulfills all of the Old Testament scriptures. If you want to know Him, get to know Him through every page of Scripture from Genesis to Malachi, from Matthew to Revelation. Put your trust in this Gospel and you will inherit eternal life. And if this Gospel is sufficient for eternal life, it is also sufficient for to see this church through a pastoral transition. Just compare the two. If God can use this gospel to raise us from the dead, cannot God use this same gospel to hold us together in His hand through a transition from one pastor to another? For who's Paul and who is Apollos anyway? I planted, the next pastor will water God gives the growth. If you focus on the gospel of our salvation, then even in this transition, this church will thrive. Not only that, this church will grow. I expect that this church will grow in number, even while there is no pastor. I expect that this gr- church will grow in depth, and spiritual maturity, even while there is no pastor. And I leave you with this, which is just a hunch, I don't know this to be true, but I wonder if this transition is not exactly what the Lord Jesus would use to mature this body of believers. That I would only be in your way in what the Lord Jesus wants to do here. Not just through the next pastor and the elders, but through the time where there is no lead pastor. Because now is a time when you rely more fully on one another. Now is a time when the plurality of elders runs its proper course. And now is the time when you remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, a descendant of David, according to my gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for this church. I pray that these things would be true, that you would help them to remember Jesus Christ. I pray that you would add to their number during the transition. I pray that you would sustain their finances. I pray that you would add to their maturity and and depth. I pray that those who have been only marginally involved would become fully involved. I pray that those who have been fully involved will dig deep and engage even more. I ask that you would put it in the hearts of every man, woman, and child to look to the elders, to honor them, to submit to them, to obey them. And I pray that you would help the elders to lead with strength and confidence, not because there's any authority in them as men, but because the authority comes through their word, which they will draw close to. In all this, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the pastor of this church. You are the head of the body. No matter what happens here on earth, that will always be the case. And so we give you every praise, honor and glory in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.